The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me. Today we're speaking about an important topic, giving and getting sexual consent. In a Me Too culture that has given voice to denied sexual abuse and misconduct, and at a time when sexual violence continues on campuses and remains a tragic reality, the question of giving and understanding sexual consent is an important one on and off campus. Our guest experts today are Dr. Jason Laker and Dr. Erica Boaz. Both are returning guests to Psych Up Live, and they'll be addressing the subject of sexual consent by discussing the findings from their consent story research with college students and comparing those findings with their most recent research that considers how members of the LGBTQ and kink communities communicate intention, consent, and dissent. Dr. Jason Laker is a professor in the Department of Counselor Education and the Doctor of Education program at San Jose State University. Dr. Erica Boaz is an adjunct lecturer in the Liberal Studies program at Santa Cruz University and a lecturer in the Sociology and Interdisciplinary Social Sciences Department at San Jose State University. Both are affiliated research faculty with the Center for Research and Education on Gender and Sexuality at San Francisco State University. They are the co-principal investigators on a research program entitled Sexual Coercion and Violence in College, Reforming Policies and Practices for Consent Education and Personal Agency. They have shared their information across the states with workshops, peer-to-peer training, and they're here today to really give us an important message. Dr. Jason Laker and Dr. Erica Boaz, it is my pleasure to welcome you back to Psych Up Live. Good to be back. Thank you so much for having us, Suzanne. Oh, you're welcome. Let's start with talking about that original research. When we discussed your research recently, you mentioned that whenever you actually met college audiences and shared some of the findings, they were intrigued and very interested. I wonder if you could share some of that with our listening audience. I can chime in about that. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think there's there's two I, my impressions are there's there's two sort of overarching reasons why people um, are responding so positively, whereas it seems to be resonating with people. And I think the first one has to do with 
context about research on these areas in general, that most of the discussion and most of the research around these issues seems to focus on laws and policy. Um, and there's a, and it's important for that to happen, certainly. Like, uh, for example, it informs uh, reforms to legislation such as uh, affirmative consent laws and so forth arise from research. That's true. But it seems like that the attention that, you know, whether it's our government or administrators at universities and schools pay to it is to focus more on making sure that the uh, student code has uh, an official definition of consent and so forth, uh, namely things like you need to give an enthusiastic yes, you need to ask, and so forth. Um, and that brings me to the second uh, reason why I think it resonates, and that is that's not really how real people engage in the intimacy in the private setting. Um, that is to say, um, while certainly there are some people who will make an overt request, may I touch this, would you like to do X, is this okay, do I have your consent, which are, these are the things, these phrases that I'm using are essentially the things that lawyers and administrators want people to do, but are not generally how we uh, tend to approach it. And the second thing is related to the first is therefore there's not been a lot of research about what people actually do. Um, in other words, uh, how do people actually have consensual negotiation and communication as they contemplate and discuss or, you know, as I say, negotiate intimacy? And our research, we feel, is innovative because we actually pursued that line of questioning. And it's important to note, and Erica can certainly say a lot more about this, or, you know, regarding how we learn about sexuality as young people, because that's um, a lot of the work that she does looks at that. But nonetheless, um, colleges, as they say, sometimes treat students as if they show up hatch out of an agate orientation, when in fact they have 18 years of experience at least before then. And as I said, Erica can speak to that. But the other piece that I'm getting at here is that um, we were able to surface actual accounts of how people interact. And it's important to note that although you can just sit somebody down who volunteers for research and say, so tell me, how did you let it be known how you, you know, that you wanted uh, to pursue this, that, or the other activity with the other person? That actually doesn't work very well, that kind of questioning, because we're very mindless in our, how we go about our business. And so it's no surprise that when we started the research, uh, the phrase, it just happened was uttered probably a hundred times. So in other words, we need to okay. also develop uh, a, a method. Um, so we're pretty proud also about our methodology of how we were able to help people to recall. And then collecting these stories to answer your question, um, when we present to audiences narrative accounts, transcripts of people explaining how they negotiated it's very powerful, both because, as I said earlier, people don't tend to talk about that, how you actually do it. Um, and so we all kind of fumble along on our own. And so it's quite empowering and, and also very poignant to and instructive to actually find out how other people are doing that in private locations since we don't tend to share that. So I know it's a long answer to a short question, which is attributable to two things. One, I'm a professor, and by definition, <laughs> the job title is called professor, so, you know, we profess. Um, and the other reason is it is important to set a table of a context, and that's why I mm -hmm. wanted to take a moment to contextualize my answer to you, Suzanne. 
Um, uh-huh. And thank you for that. One one footnote I want our listeners to know, and maybe you could expand a little bit on this, Erica, is in this research, it was self-selected freshmen who were asked about how they give and get consent in their sexual relating with other, other co-eds. Uh-huh. Or, and what you shared with me is that you met with them four times that freshman year. And that over the course of them sharing, they actually became more reflective. And some of them even changed the um, kind of reckless way they might have started out. That is just giving them that safe space to talk, I remember you said, seemed really... Um, to sort of represent this being almost like action research. Good things were happening Uh even as you were hearing that um, they really didn't quite have language to explain how they give and get consent. This was almost like Uh a new question someone had never asked them. Uh Uh Um, Yes, so... To tack on to Jason's very thorough explanation, I want to also emphasize the piece that's related to your question, Suzanne, um, about honest communication, honest expression, um, verbal expression when talking about sex, because I think that one of the things that makes people really um, shocked, um, interested in our research is that we were able to get very, very candid responses from um, our respondents. And that's one of the things that makes people <laughs> jaws drop, right? Because they're like, how did, you get, how did you get young people to tell you as researchers um, these experiences they've had or these thoughts they've had or these feelings that they've had? Um, and there are ways in which we are trained to talk about sex and desire and coercion and pleasure. Um, you know, in sort of a public sphere, but even in our private, most intimate personal relationships with friends and with partners. And so the ways that our respondents have talked about sex and consent has been really um, honest and um, very authentic. And so um, so when we, when we had these communications with um, the first-year students, and I just want to correct that we had three um, interviews with them in their first year, and then one with many of them in their final, in their fourth year of college. So we had a follow-up fourth um, interview. So it was a three, it was a round of three interviews in their first year. Um, but even within that, you know, it's like we we were able to set up a an interaction, um, um, a space for them to be able to think about and to say um, what they really felt about some of their some of their interactions with their partners, with their hookups, with their relationships, um, with their sexual encounters that they hadn't expressed to other people, and even to themselves in an honest way. And um, and the reason why it became became like action research um, where they started to learn something about themselves and make changes in their own lives is because when you're honest with yourself, when you are able to put language to your feelings, to your experiences um, that resonate as true, I think that change ultimately happens um, in your own life um, because you finally admitted 
right? Or you finally developed language around something that happened that may have been really hard or may have been um, very, very pleasurable, and you are not able to admit those things because of the ways that we are conditioned to experience our own sexuality and to think about it. Mm. Yes. One thing that really I remembered from the research that that I want to mention is I think at one point you give them a vignette on Mm -hmm. uh, what you call a gray experience or it's called gray rape maybe and but you correct me and in which someone describes a situation where they wake up they realize they've so intoxicated that they've sort of blanked out um, and they're in the middle of someone having sex with them and at that point they have to decide what in fact they're going to do and I think um your respondents, some of them said, I, that happened to me. And there was no judgment on it, but it certainly is a very common experience that when you read co-ed's descriptions of consent stories, this is a common one. Now, what, mm. what made you put that vignette in, and how do you think it served the research and the young people? Shall I uh, jump in about that? Sure. Yeah, um, sure. Well, I'll get started at least. Um, so, yeah, as I referenced earlier, um, just simply approaching someone and asking, well, I shouldn't say just approaching. Obviously, these are people who volunteered for research. So that's one thing in our favor is they're already open to discussing the general subject. But as I mentioned, we tend to be very mindless in our in how we operate. So, I mean, I'm sure you and, uh, and listeners can think of uh, times when you woke up in the morning and then you were at work and you don't really recall the, the time between the bed and the office, you know, that, that we have a ritual that we engage in uh, putting on the sock, taking the shower, brushing the teeth and so on and so forth that we do so often that we don't think about it. And we often go through life that way. When it comes to sexual interactions, a lot of times um, people <clears throat> meet up, let's say, whether it's at a college party, for example, where maybe there's some flirting, there's some drinking, sometimes they might start making out. Um, in any case, uh, there's, someone leads another to the bedroom. There may have may, or may not have been an ask. It's just a momentum developed, you know, where they go, and they don't necessarily have a plan. You know, it's not common, and it would be seen as, as socially awkward to, um, to, you know, to say, well, I'd like to lead you upstairs to my bedroom, and in the, once we get there, I want to do this, and I want to do that, and so forth. Most people don't really operate that way, and so they kind of go along and don't really have flag posts, if you will, to check in. And I think by having the prompt, we, you know, since we know that people don't generally talk about these things, we knew that when we started the research. And bear in mind, at the time, we didn't realize we were starting to research consent. We thought we were studying so-called hookup culture because that was all the buzz in the media. So by mm-hmm. ch- since you have only about an hour for an interview, it's important to be very intentional with the use of the time and, and taking an extended period of time to get people into a mindset. We don't have that kind of time. So at the time that there was, mm-hmm. you know, this buzz around uh, um, hookup culture, there also was an, a, a, a rather controversial op-ed written by someone um, both the op-ed itself and then a lot of responses to it created quite a buzz around that notion of gray rape. That is, um, uh, there's people on the one hand who say it's not ambiguous. If you don't get consent, that's rape, and you don't call it sexual misconduct. You don't call it non-consensual. 
um, you have to call it rape. And then there's other people who are like, wait a minute, you know, there's a lot of nuance here. And that's, there's a lot of debate about that. And so this person made the op-ed about this, this notion of gray rape um, where uh, there's a lot of ambiguity embedded in the situation. And we thought that it, it did resonate. And the fact that it got such strong responses, um, you know, affirmed that it was something that was, had a, you know, was good for provoking discussion. And so what we actually used wasn't the initial op-ed, but rather an op-ed about the op-ed. Um, so that it was sort of a twofer where it was speaking about the concept proposed by the initial author and then having both critiques and, um, well, you know, maybe um, kind of, you know, attitude. And by presenting that to a student very early on in the research interview, it gets them square and center into the mindset of, um, of a baseline. Um, that they can either say it's never happened or I feel very differently or I feel exactly that way. But the point is you're presenting that baseline to be engaged right away. And it turned out to be quite effective. And as you noted, some of our participants said, well, actually, yeah, this kind of thing happened to me. And as Erica was mentioning about the piece around reflection, you know, we already have plenty of research about learning and about psychosocial development. And both of them speak about the how essential reflection is. So um, in this case, having the students talk about something that very few ever talk about and to do so with two adults who are really nonjudgmental, we work to create a respectful and safe place. We were older, but we weren't their parents. And we were not, we were familiar with college culture, but not in their peer group. So that presented quite a nice opening for people to open up and, and in some cases unburden. And in other cases, to explore something that they hadn't really reflected on strongly. And as I mentioned, since people don't usually talk about the details of what happened uh, in the bedroom, um, it was quite a liberating space for people to be able to explore that without having to feel embarrassed, judge what their peers would, how their peers would respond and so forth. So it was a really good, it was good learning for us and it was good learning for the participants. And that's really affirming, like I'm really pleased that we were able to provide that kind of space for people who in turn provided very generous accounts. Take a break, but I, I really love when you say that, in fact, it really <clears throat> opened space up because I can't tell you, I've never met a rape victim or someone who's been in a compromised situation, male or female, who doesn't in some way blame themselves. So that as you mm. say, words could be put to this uh, we call it narrating healing. Someone bears witness without shame or blame. Generally, lessons learned are going to come from that in a way that somebody really starts, as you say, Erica, to self-reflect. We're going to take a break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Jason Laker and Dr. Erica Boaz. And they're sharing with us their earlier research on consent stories with college co-eds as a backdrop because they're going to be comparing that with the ways that people give consent in the LGBTQ community and in the kink community. Stay with us. It's important material. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. What's your coffee story? 
the one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My Favorite Coffee Story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Our humanity is a thing we take for granted, but it takes many forms, and it requires much of us to fully express it. Listen to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human with host Dr. Leanne Nguyen. This program will explore topics about survival, fulfillment, hope, connection, being fully alive to ourselves and to others. Guests or people whose life experience inspires us to reflect on these questions. Tune into On Living, broadcasting live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. We're speaking with Dr. Erica Boaz and Dr. Jason Laker. They are sharing with us their original research on consent stories, and we're using it as a backdrop to compare their more recent research on consent given in the LGBTQ and kink communities. Now, Jason, I know you wanted to continue to share a little bit more on the question of actually being in compromising situations and histories of any kind um, on su- for subjects who joined you in that college research. Yeah, just briefly to say, um, you know, as, as we were discussing before the break, the, narr- the uh, op-ed that we had people read about uh, uh, an ambiguous situation um, in it, that you should know that for ethical reasons, when we were recruiting participants, we explicitly asked that if people had been harmed sexually at any point in their life, that they not volunteer. Because our intention was to understand um, experiences that were consensual and positive with the idea of taking that knowledge towards the problem of resolving, you know, preventing and responding more effectively to gender violence. So we started with the assumption that our participants would not, would all have had consensual only experiences. And to the earlier point about how things become clearer for people, the more they reflect and can name the experiences, find the language for it. It turned out that, uh, you know, there were a couple of participants um, who it turned out that at, upon further reflection and with presentation of new information, look back at things that have happened in their lives 
and that determined that they were not consensual. Um, and that can be that can be very jarring for a person. But it's also the case that usually, especially in a in a, a relatively, I hate to use the, say, the word controlled environment, but just in an environment where you know it's a research interview, you have two experienced people creating this sort of respectful, non-judgmental space. That in many cases, even if the participant became emotional about it, um, it that revelation and being able to to assign their own language to to defining it um, was very. Um, uh, I want to say healing, but I can't. I can't back that up with data. But just, mm. it, it appeared that way. But certainly, um, very helpful toward their growth. And everything we know about student psychosocial development and learning, both of which are very well established in research, we know that how learning happens. So it was very gratifying to have people learn in the front of an area that people don't usually get to grow on because we don't talk about these things. So. Just wanted to mention that we were, particularly to, to assure listeners that in conducting research like this, that we're very mindful of the sensitivity and risk for people, and that um, that was how we approached it. But that actually ended up creating situations where, you know, you have people sharing information that Erica and I can look at more objectively and say, this was not consensual. That's data, because people were conceiving of what happened as consensual until it started to get looked at more carefully. So that's also part of understanding what happened um, and, uh, and people doubting their own voice. Um, so sure. I wanted to put that out there. Thank you. And very important when people can start to make meaning of pain they've had that they could never label or understand mm-hmm. in, the, in the presence of support and uh, understanding. Now, just so we can bring... Um, the other, the new, the new research, right to the forefront. Um, Erica, could you share with us what was the research design that involved the LGBTQ community and the kink community? How did people sign up for this? What was the nature of that research? Okay, so this um, this round of our research really came out of us wanting to um, be able to present. Um, an understanding of how people with um, sort of, I mean, what we had hypothesized would be more overt um, um, practices around um, initiating and establishing consent, how they actually did it, and the way that we um, um, theorized this was through this idea of insurgent knowledge. And so I just want to say a little bit about that, and then I'll go into the the more logistical part of the design. Um, but insurgent knowledge is, is a um, sociological theory um, by Michel Foucault that understands sort of subordinated knowledges as having real meaning and importance for being able to overturn overturn dominant structures. So the way that we thought about the LGBTQ um, plus um, community and the kink community as having practices around consent that were more, more overt, um, yet being members of marginalized groups um, could help those of us in more mainstream parts of society or quote-unquote vanilla um, with vanilla sexual practices understand how we might be able to um, establish and maintain consensual sexual practices. Um, So we initiated this this study um, by um, uh, making contact with 
um, different groups on college campuses. And so one of the groups that really became interested and um, let us know that they would be able to help us recruit were the communities. Um, They, you know, they have an investment in being able to offer um, their practices around consent to the rest of us, right? And so when we think about kink um, communities and and kink practicing people, we think about sort of this like alternative world. Um, But really what we wanted to do was, was, one, in, in a sense, and this, is, this in no way means to make anybody normal, but to normalize practices of consent, overt consent, um, um, that may, may be seen by the general public as um, perverse, right? I mean, kinky already in, the, in dominant culture um, has a resonance of being kind of perverted, right? And so we wanted to normalize. Um, these practices and say, no, these are actually <laughs> the antithesis of perverse because people are trying to establish um, co-consensual um, practices. And this part becomes really important to the, to the actions they take sexually. Um, so what we did was actually Jason and I became the um, um, faculty advisors for the kink group on our campus, um, but they helped us recruit on on campuses, um, and we were we got a lot of response. So it wasn't hard when we had somebody in place who said, "Hey, you know, this is a these are two people. They've been doing research on consent. Um, if you want to in, be a part of their interview study, um, let them know, or let me know, and I'll let them know." Um, and we actually had a really, I mean, given that this is a really small. Um, demographic on college campuses, people who identify as part of the King community, we had a really great response um, from them. And, um, and so then we just set up interviews um, on these campuses and people came and they spoke, um, you know, they, they came already having thought about their consent practices because at least in the college-based um, King communities, this is a really important part of what they do and what they talk about and their education. There's a deep education around consent um, and um, people's own kind of um, ways that they're orienta- oriented toward consent and consent practices or have not been. Um, and so they already came with language and they already came with, you know, very um, in-depth theory and very complicated theory around what consent means and how you achieve it. Um, and that it's always a part of a of an equal um, interaction. Yeah. Um, so, so just on our sort of interview protocol, we asked many of the same questions that we had asked in our first round of interviews about you know just tell us about your your what you do um, and how you think about sex and and what consent means to you. Um, but also we asked them what kind of advice or what would you what message do you have for the vanilla community. Right or vanilla peoples about consent. Um, so we added a couple of questions um, on that, but we we really left our questions open ended for the most part. And I, mm-hmm. I'd like to offer uh, also the clarification that um, we didn't we weren't studying set practices per se. So mm-hmm. whether it mm-hmm. was our initial participants or the students who identify as kinky or queer or what have you, we weren't really asking them questions about specific sexual acts. It came up sometimes if they wanted to share it as part of making a broader point, but we're, of course, mostly focused on 
on consent communication negotiation, which makes, you know, just to some of the points Erica raised, speaking to people who, for a variety of reasons, are really intentional, both in determining what activities they want to or don't want to do, but in communicating and negotiating with other people about either, you know, inviting them or persuading them to do X, Y, or Z. It's that persuasion, it's the communication, it's it's how they find the, whether it's the courage because we don't, you know, we don't grow up thinking about or getting encouraged to think about this stuff. So it, it to me, at least, uh, a courageous act to put it out there that I'm really interested in doing X with you and would you be willing to do that and finding ways to, to communicate that, that desire, um, even to acknowledge having desire. These are all very um, powerful uh, advancements. And um, this is what is so exciting for us is it's not the point of who you want to be with or what activity you want to do. The point is about, and, you know, naming that and finding effective ways to communicate with another uh, what it is you want to do and what you want them to do and so forth, to find language, to find nonverbal rituals, whatever, and to understand how people who have consensual interactions, what exactly, what do they do to achieve that? And then taking that knowledge, we can do capacity building, we can do consent education, we can do um, act out scenes. You know, a lot of times people do social action theater uh, to present about such things or lectures and presentations. Or frankly, sometimes we just, you know, you know we have PowerPoints at presentations we give where we just put up the narratives from our participants and let them speak for themselves. And it's very, it's a beautiful thing you know, to see, to give people new options. Part of the downside to us not talking about it, obviously one is shame, but the other is where do you get your mentoring? How do you, how do you find out how other people effectively um, communicate about such wishes and, and negotiations if you don't get that information from other people who have done it? So we, I think we're filling a gap for people that's very important. I think it was so interesting to me that from your sample, how respectful they suggested they were of their partners, never touching before asking. They were generally always using affirmative standards. Yes meant yes. Um, the whole idea of some one of the people, I think, um, from what I read, mentioned, I think it's good to get a sense of how your partner communicates before you even start asking. And that made so much sense. I don't think couples do that enough. That is, there was, you start to think, there was such a great respect and never the assumption that they know what the other wants or that the other should read their mind about what they want. I mean, and maybe that Uh goes with being a marginalized culture. When I think of young adults I work with who are struggling to come out, um, their real, their position is, please do not assume anything about me. And it's not until they have the words to really say, this is my gender, this is my sexual preference. So they're almost forced to have a language that a heterosexual college kid doesn't have, um, and there's so many assumptions uh-huh. in in the let's say hookup culture that really prevent consent stories. So this is was a very interesting research, I thought, and it it was probably I don't know how surprising. Were you surprised with what you found here? 
Um, I mean, as you know, we're talking about the generalities of of the um, what we found of our findings, but I think you know, I would I would not be honest if I said that I wasn't surprised with some of what was shared, just in terms of like one how deep the practice of consent. Um, language goes, um, the depth of education around consent, like, you know, some of, not all the participants, not all our respondents, but many of our respondents took that education really seriously to the point where, you know, on top of their college studies, they're reading high theory about um, some of these issues about, you know, um, BDSM um, and really making sure that they're responsible for their own learning and for how they treat their partners. Um, and so, you know, I was, I was, I was surprised. I was pleased um, to learn about this, and to, and very grateful to the respondents because I feel like that's also an education for me. That was an education for me um, mm-hmm. as a researcher. You know, I hope to learn from from my respondents, and so I would say that that um, yes, I was surprised and and very pleased um, with some of what I learned. Yeah, I mean the the elegance. Um, with which some of these young people who are engaged in kink practices were able to articulate um, their thinking about it, how they approach things, and why. Um, I think I was surprised in a positive way just at the depth of that. And then mm-hmm. uh, in terms of um, people who are cisgender, heterosexual, uh, the dominant culture, I think there were times when I was surprised at the, just how how much anxiety and and um, shame. I mean, I knew that that generally was there, but the, you know, when you actually have a real human being talking about experiences they've had or or, or insecurities they have, and to do so openly, which um, also is gratifying as researchers to 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 see that we created a space in which people could do that. Um, I remember one in particular. I don't want to right. shift um, away Jason, from, from right. queer. Ja- Jason, let, let me just apologize. We're out of time for this segment, but we can come right back. I want you to have time to share um, the piece that you were just going to speak about. We've been, you've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're having a really important conversation with our guests, Dr. Jason Laker and Dr. Erica Boaz. We're talking about the comparison of consent research um, sexual consent research with a heterosexual college group and members of the LGBTQ community and King community. And the differences are important and there are lessons to be learned here. Stay with us. We're going to come back with more. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you finding your frequency? 
It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio. Live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Jason Lathier and Erica Boaz. We're talking about the comparison of their research with college co-eds and college students from the LGBTQ and King communities. And in this section, um, Erica and Jason, let's talk about the lessons learned, the unexpected lessons learned from the LGBTQ and King communities that might inform other college co-eds, heterosexual um, co-eds, as well as adults, as well as parents who want so much for their kids to be able to have um, safe but fulfilling connections with others. What do you think we can share? Yeah. Um, well, I always think about um, the t- lifespan and college as being one part of a lifespan. And when all of this, um, you know, consent education and um, um, sex education comes to, and, you know, the lack thereof comes to a head in college when college students, you know, at least in the United States and at least for the middle class, um, often go off you know, to live on their own for the first time. Um, and they're expected to be, to take responsibility for their lives in ways that they weren't necessarily um, prior to that. Um, but, you know, clearly all of their education before that had to happen 
outside of college. Um, and so I think a lot about you know, my research and on um, how children are taught about sex um, and sexuality and, you know, in schools, um, but also beyond in families, um, in family life, and how there's so little room for um, a, a positive, healthy understanding of sex and sexuality. Um, there's very little room for that because most of the ways in which kids are taught about sex and sexuality, at least taught to express um, their curiosity about sex and sexuality and pleasure, um, um, and to be able to have conversations is punitive. And I think that um, that continues on into college as well, but um, I'll get to that in a moment. Um, and so they, many people arrive at in college with very um, limited understanding of uh, or limited feelings about how they can express themselves um, sexually, um, yet many of them want to be sexual um, in some way or another, right? But they haven't had very much opportunity to think about what it is that they really want to get in touch with themselves, um, to get in touch with their own feelings about their sexuality, um, and to be able to talk about it or express it in ways that are healthy, um, and to have an understanding of self when they find themselves in situations that, uh, you know, in, in relationships, in hookups, in, at parties where they may be getting hit on, um, to think about what it is that they really want and how they can bring their true self to the, to the situation. So a lot of what happens is that people either really protect themselves from being in the situations because they don't, they don't feel comfortable or they find themselves in those situations and they don't have ways of um, communicating, um, they haven't developed ways of communicating that are really um, authentic to what they want because they don't necessarily know what they want because they're getting all these other messages, right? So we have this this culture where it's really not okay to have honest conversations about sex um, with adults, kids with adults, um, or even kids with kids, um, or young people with young people, yet we're being bombarded with messages about being sexy, and about sex, you know, who, how to be sexy and how to express our sexuality. It's really not in line with who we are, right? That's really about like this overt materialism of sexuality um, and a very sexist um, one too. And so I think, you know, one of the takeaways from this, the kink study is that you really need to get in touch with what you want. Um, you know, if you, if you wish to have healthy relation, sexual relationships with others um, and, a, and a healthy sexual relationship with yourself, right? So I think that always, you know, people are like, what do we do? What do we do? But if we don't do the stuff to get in touch with ourselves um, about sex and sexuality, which means honest communication, honest conversations, then we're going to continue to have this problem. And of course, this is very, these conversations or these messages are very gendered as well, right? So for young boys, young men get get certain messages and young girls and young women get other kinds of messages. And those become very complicated um, when you're in a heterosexual interaction. And that's not to say that in, um, in um, um, queer interactions, they're not complicated either because they definitely are. Uh, but I would say that when we think about like, consent, um, sexual consent in the mainstream, we're thinking really, very straight, right? Very heterosexual. 
um, and everybody's wondering what we do about all these problems because all these, you know, in the Me Too movement we see that so many women, and mostly women, but not only women, have had um, experiences where they've been coerced, um, if not outright assaulted. Um, well, Erica, Erica so one that, of, one that's of the, one of my one, main takeaways. Well, well, one of the things that fits there is one of your respondents in the LGBTQ community who said, well, can't we make... Um, affirmative response is sexy. Now, I try to think, I'm thinking about college young men. Rather than uh-huh. using porn as a guide, guideline, what if they actually considered saying, you know what I would really love for us to do tonight is this, which would then uh-huh. maybe help their partner say, mm, I don't think that's something I can do, but what I could do is this. That is, I don't even think we've... Um, Ever ha- I mean, I had sons, and I don't, I don't remember having the conversation, certainly of putting words to, as you say, what you would like. Because if you're clear mm-hmm. about what you would like, then the other has sometimes the words to say, yes, that sounds fine, or that's not something I can do. We have, we have particularly heterosexual co-eds anxious saying the request. They don't quite know how to do it. And they certainly don't know how to really make their own needs known based on that request. So I think it's true that we have to, that's the beauty of your research, is you're helping us find a language and a space for the back and forth dialogue that should happen. And as you folks say, in the sexual scene, not in a classroom somewhere that's never applied to the actual scene of being with someone. Well, you know, Suzanne, you're speaking to that that dilemma. Um, the proposal that you just suggested is is similar to starting a class at Chapter Five instead of Chapter One. Is that it? It that's the difficulty. Is you know the the gender scripts we get about what it means to be a real man or real woman, and the hangups and the avoidance and the shame associated with sexual expression makes it really hard for people to even know what they like or don't like because exploring is so loaded. Um, Something that kind of merges the two, I know that we'll be wrapping up soon, but I pulled up an excerpt. I'd like to just read a quick portion of it if I might um, because it it kind of synthesizes the things that were just being talked about. And this is Abby. Um, She's a 22-year-old white queer woman. Abby is a pseudonym, and she's talking about um, comparing her experience with a high school boyfriend to dating a woman in college. And then she said... I really think that it didn't, in terms of exploring what I actually enjoy, it didn't happen until college, until I was in a relationship with women here, because having that experience allowed me to realize how many conventions had been regulating my sex life before. And I even look back on my relationship with my high school boyfriend, and I was like, wow, I had to play a character every time in a relationship, or else I was, what's the word, legible, and it. It just didn't make sense, and I didn't, and I just didn't realize that until I got got out of it. And then, and then I said, "Are you saying that eligible?" And she said, "Yeah. If I wasn't playing a type that I recognized from a movie, then it felt like he didn't know what to do because I wasn't this character that you know you could be in, you could be in, you know. Which to me, just like, and it's something I definitely associate with the men that I know, whether it's sexually or not. Just like not having as in tune of that presence and able to." And she says, I think men are asked to emotionally deprive themselves or cut themselves off. So this is a tangent, she's saying, but I, but I always say in terms of my sexual orientation, it's not that I'm not into men, 
I just, if there were a man that was not like, was, was like not a man, you know, that's what it would be about to me, the social roles. And, the, you know, I come to this research yeah. initially as a men and masculinity study scholar. So that's, that's my primary background in terms of gender research. And it just really struck me here is how, how beautifully Abby is talking about the scripts that men and women have. So she's not uh, promoting, the, you know, like advocating that people start uh, being lesbian and gay, you know, what have you. She's talking right. about her own lived experience of relationship with a man versus her relationship with a woman. And in particular, the contrast in the script that, that um, and when she talks about the men emotionally depriving themselves, that really resonates with me um, because if you think about what does it mean to be a real man in part is not to be vulnerable, it's to be stoic, it's to, you know, instead of going to the doctor to walk it off, you know, this kind of business. And um, it makes it really hard for young people, either for women, the dilemma of that if, you're, if you have any desire, you're, you're a slut, and if you have no desire, you're a prude. And it's really, it's really hard to navigate the middle and for men to be able to express vulnerability and being uncertain, no, I don't, I've never had sex, or I'm, I don't know what to do here, this kind of stuff, it's, we're, we're, it's a setup. Yeah. And so Wait. hopefully this research and collecting these stories will help open up new pathways for people, uh, regardless I, I, of their sexual I, identity or orientation. I really think that's what you're both doing. In the interest of time, um, there's so much more to say. How could people find your research online and find you? Would they go um, to consent? Well, we have, yeah, we have a website, um, consentstories.org or .com. You can go to either one. Um, and you can email us as well. Um, I can give my email. Um, is emboas at gmail.com. And Jason, um they can find you through consent stories, I assume. I want people to know that you travel throughout the country. You give workshops. Um, you're a great research in this topic. As we're just about out of time, I want to thank you both again. Continue your research. We'll continue the conversation. We need to start opening a space to share sexual arena and the messages that people give each other. Our young people need that. Remember, thank I want to thank you're welcome. Thanks to my yeah, listeners. Thank you so much. Thanks, Erica. You can hear this in any prior show as a podcast by this evening. This will be a podcast on many sites, on the iPhone, iTunes, Sketcher, on my site, eventually on the consentstories.com um, if they would choose. Remember, if you have a question or a comment, just Contact me at radiophillips at gmail.com. Mostly until next week. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week.